A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and happy Halloween! To thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for sticking with us, we wanted to drop a little something into your feed. This bonus content was actually cut from an earlier episode with Dr. Radcliffe Edmonds, a professor of classics at Bryn Mawr College. If you would like a refresher on that conversation, we recommend listening or re-listening to episode 8. He has published on Greek imaginings of death and afterlife and on the discourse of magic in the ancient world, which we thought was perfect for a Halloween release. Dr. Edmonds shares his thoughts about the representation of the underworld in Rick Riordan's Heroes of Olympus book series and why death and the afterlife are considered taboo in modern society, among other things. And finally, if you like this episode and or any of our other content, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple and Spotify and subscribing to our Patreon to help support the creation of more ancient world content. The link to our Patreon is down below in the show notes. Thanks again, and enjoy this spooky episode. I'm really excited because when I saw that you were kind of an expert in the portrayal of the afterlife, which is something I think some people are really, really interested in it, but a lot of people are like, well, I only know a little bit about this because I learned it in a class or, well, this is what I learned in church or temple or something. Also, I feel like talking about dead people and, and just dying is very taboo still to this day, yep. which I get it. We don't like to acknowledge our own mortality, I suppose. Because we don't know. Shakespeare of course said it best that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will right we're like there's something after death but we don't know what it is but we spend and, a lot of time imagining it yeah 100 and i find unless i'm gonna go charlie text or some corners of the internet i'm not gonna find it especially in popular culture which is why sort of at the at the beginning when i had my handy cried in house of hades <laughs> right in front yeah. of me it struck me also not only because do i just enjoy reading it but It seems to be one of the only pieces of popular literature that would get out to a wide array of people that really take a, an attempt, like a concerted effort to not only talk about what death or Tartarus or the afterlife underworld looks like, but it goes into detail to try to describe what these areas look like. It describes mm -hmm. the, the river of fire, the river of forgetfulness. I, I suppose I could say the, the names, but there are a lot of people who aren't familiar with the mythological names, which is why I'm just simplifying. Right. But as someone who this 
this is your area of expertise. I just wanted to know, you know, what is your take on this is how he describes Tartarus. This is how he maps it out. Do you feel that it was well-researched enough that while it's still highly fictionalized for his intended audience, can it still be used as, hey, this is actually a pretty good idea of what it's like. And I think people should read this, even though it's not 100% accurate. It's not supposed to be, but. I would say that Riordan is almost always very well researched. I mean, that's one of, you know, as as somebody who is deeply steeped in the, in the mythology, he's usually very good. There are very few sort of mythological slips that he makes, and he delights in pulling out sort of obscure corners. I'm like, no way that nobody knows nobody talks about that that's great the house of hades and the depiction of the journey through the underworld that percy and annabeth do there yeah he's drawing on a lot of the sources he's also of course bringing in later receptions there are touches of dante and touches of of later uh reworkings of that but dante is working from Virgil and Virgil is working from Plato and Plato is picking up the Paraphlegathon and Lethe and Styx and all of those names of the river of fire and forgetfulness and shuddering from Homer, right? So all of those pieces are there in the mythological tradition. And Raridan does, I think, a nice job of bringing them together, creating a story that fits together, fits patterns of the sort of episodic narrative, journey narratives of myth that it works on that level as well. The conceit he has of, of Tartarus as, as a living being, that's kind of weird and funky. It's actually more Norse, but it works in the context. It doesn't respond, I don't think, to very familiar things within Greek mythology, but it works in the story. And, you know, it helps build, you know, connect the narrative with the whole Gaia arc of that second series. And he has some wonderful details of the sort of what it feels like to drink the water or things like that. And there have been other storytellers, other novelists who have tried to work through some of those things. I was just rereading Ursula Gwynn's Wizard of Earthsea, which in the third book, there's a journey through the underworld. And there are similar sort of images. Frodo and Sam in Mordor are going through the underworld And there are similar images of torments of thirst and dryness and heat and spines. And these are the familiar pieces that make us say, that's hell. This is the worst torment. This is the opposite of what good life should be, which is the point. And it's interesting when we think of hell, Tartarus, uh, in the conventional sense nowadays, I think most people just kind of, it's it's universally accepted. Oh, it's closer to Dante's description. There's all these circles and the different levels of punishment. Lots and it's of fire. This, <laughs> lots of fire, lots of punishment, lots of just like you're stuck until you eventually maybe can make your way out. It's interesting because in the classical sense, yeah, there was Olympus, but also you don't really go there unless you are immortalized by the gods unless you are literally hey plucked out because we want to bring you up here with us and i think a lot of people you associate oh well i guess yeah there were like the different fields of punishment over here oh but you have the elysian uh, field right something just that we consider today weird like why why would you send people down there if they were good, if they were heroic, if they did something not terrible? You know, what do you say to people who are like, I don't get it. Why don't they? Why didn't ha- why didn't 
they have some kind of heaven like we do. I mean, why couldn't they go up to Olympus? Why did you have to send them just to a different part of the underworld? That's sort of morbid. My answer to that is that sometimes they did. The Isles of the Blessed were mentioned in Hesiod. There's a reference like it in Homer. One of the, the things that we fall victim to in trying to figure out what was the classical idea of the afterlife is again, Virgil, who is the one who puts the Elysian fields down in the underworld next to the places of punishment. And he has a sort of works it all out there. It's much less clear what's going on in, in something like Homer or in Hesiod. And even more importantly, if you look at tombstones and grave inscriptions, people didn't have the idea that everybody is necessarily down in featureless underworld where everyone's flitting around like the ghosts that Homer so eloquently described. Actually, they seem to be imagining them in a happy place. The earth is sitting lightly on them. So even if they're under the ground, they're not burdened down underneath, but maybe they've gone up to the eye there, up to the sky. Aristophanes makes jokes, so often our earliest wit, you know, evidence for things, about people going up into a star. So when you stop and think about it, you would expect there was actually a lot of different ideas about what happened to people after death that were thoroughly contradictory, which is totally characteristic, the way people in every society think about after death. Right. There are lots of different ways of imagining it. And if you put them all together and line them up, it's like this doesn't fit with this, doesn't fit with this, doesn't fit with this. It's interesting to see how different types of evidence give you a different picture. So the pictures of the torments of hell, which are always so popular, tend to come from texts where somebody's saying this is the right way to behave in life. And if you don't behave this way, this is what's going to happen to you. Most of the time, people aren't thinking about that as after death. When they're thinking about what happens to your grandmother after she dies, you're not thinking of playing a harp up in a cloudy place or thinking of, even worse, thinking of her roasting in you know, some sort of horrible torment, right? That's not, you're thinking of her as you remember her and imagining an existence that is very similar, but good, the ideal elements of that existence. And when we see tomb inscriptions, when we see various poetic reflections, we get something more like that among the Greeks and Romans as well. But then we get these really powerful literary depictions that again, tell a myth of the afterlife with an ax to grind. I would say that even Homer, with his depiction of there's nothing down in the underworld, it's all very gray, and there's no liveliness. The point of that is that the only thing that brings life after death is memory through poetic song. Not coincidentally, the kind of epic song that Homer himself provides, right? I mean, that, and, and this is a very strong tradition in, in Greek culture, right? Is that epic memory is what makes you live forever. And Simonides on that poem um, on the Battle of Plataea, in fact says, right? Even though these heroes perished, they're not dead because we're remembering them in song. That's how you live. But that's how you live if you're a poet whose job is to do it that way, right? right? When you're building a, a tomb for your grandmother and you know making little offerings and tying ribbons on the steely and doing the kinds of things that we know that normal people did all the time, you're not thinking of it that way. You're thinking perhaps you tie a ribbon on the, on the funeral steely and then you tell a story of 
what your grandmother, a story your grandmother told you or something she did with you when you're, right? You are keeping her alive through memory, but in a different kind of way. So with all these different aspects then of death and the afterlife, one thing that I was shocked that made it into something like Riordan's books, just maybe it's because he likes those little details. I was shocked to see it just because I was like, that's really obscure. Most people wouldn't think about it is when he introduces his Romans, the Roman kids in the Roman camp in the second series, the Heroes of Olympus series, he described Alar, the household spirit ghost thing that would kind of go around Roman houses. And I remember just thinking, wow, I don't remember hearing or seeing about these anywhere else. Maybe that's just because I haven't had the time to read more into it. But this is, again, a problem of our evidence, right? Because domestic religion, the religion you do in your house, in your family, you don't write that down. You don't tell big stories about it. It's an incidental detail that everybody does, but it's not something that you spin a story about or inscribe on stone. And so we don't know about it. If we piece together the bits and pieces, we know that every Roman house, especially through archaeology, every Roman house had a lorarium. Every Roman you know, family celebrated these festivals of the dead. We know that the same thing is going on in Greece, even though they don't have lararia, they have household altars, they have offerings for the dead family members that are given at regular intervals. There are festivals, community-wide festivals honoring the dead. And they thought about the dead ancestors as having an impact on their life. If they were angry, that could be the source of your misfortune, right? That's one of the things that you would want to check about. If you were a good person, you would be the kind of person who would build a tomb, make offerings. It's the fascinating little bits of evidence from Greek lawsuits, inheritance lawsuits, which talk about boring tech. Property law in ancient Athens is just pretty much about the same as property law now, right? It's the same kind of detail. But Embedded in some of those lawsuits is information about how important it was that somebody gives offerings at your tomb. So a man without heirs would in fact adopt an heir so that somebody would build him a tomb and and give offerings. And we know this because in lawsuits, some guy says, I know I, I was the heir because I'm the one who's been performing the funeral rituals. And these guys who are coming in and claiming that they're descendants and are entitled to a share of the property, they've never done anything. It's those little details that don't make it into the myth books, right? (laughs) Um, Well, also, it's in contemporary society. No one wants to think of, oh, my mom, my dad, my grandma, who I love so much. Oh, no, they're like trapped in some spirit ghostly form around my house i mean for most people these days that would be a really uncomfortable thought wait oh my gosh there's a ghost here in my room i'm i'm oh no obviously back then that's not what happened i mean they don't feel it's bad right trapped is the word right that worries us particularly as moderns right that we would be trapped in one place but of course in antiquity most people stayed in one place for generation and generation and generation. That's still true in many parts of the world and even many parts of the country, right? If you live in a house that your grandparents lived in and you see things of theirs that are still around, they are still around, right? There is the memory of them that is, that's still there. 
it's not a haunting in a negative sense. But when you see the lovely vase that your grandmother always had on her, you know, chest of drawers, and, you know, now that she's passed away, it's come down to you, you remember your grandmother every time you see that. That's true. Thinking of the the Lars or the Manes, right, who are circulating around, they're still as tied to the place. It is, it's still that link to the living that the dead always have. And so whether we like to think about it or not, and if we think too hard, it does feel a little creepy. The dead are always with us. We don't lose people out of our lives entirely unless we entirely forget them. That can be a very good thing. That is in many ways a very comforting thing. It's the stories of ghosts out of control. That's where it gets spooky, right? That's where it gets scary. The restless dead who aren't in their proper, happy new base, new world, but are somehow coming back and interfering in weird ways with the world of the living. That's the creepiness. That's the scariness. And those are the ones who get used for magical attack. You take your little cursed tablet and you put it in the grave of someone who died untimely. And so they're restless. And the force of Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That gives it the power. And it's funny to think about only because I studied abroad for a semester, junior year, my fall semester in Edinburgh. and 
I remember it was a point of pride that when you got there, people would say, do you know that this is the most haunted city in Europe? Welcome. Please take a take a midnight ghost tour through our city. Go through some of these winds and closes, which are narrow alleys and staircases that are very creepy. And you go under these bridges and one in, in the morning and people are like, and this person was hanged here and his spirit is restless. And so you'll uh-huh. hear some uh, uh, some uh, things rustling around like shackles of a ghost and i'm like <gasps> good stories once again yes. right and like good stories not only are they full of memorable things but they also make the point about the boundaries of the world at a, at a very deep level this is life this is death how do we know what the separation is it's by telling a story of where it de- where the boundary is crossed and by pointing out the anomaly of the crossing of the boundary we reinforce the normal which is the separation between those worlds we always get a, a sort of a thrill out of that some people more than others i'm not a huge fan of the horror genre i have friends who just adore the whole genre right but it works that way i was terrified i mean i was there on halloween night and they said do you want to take a a tour of Greyfriars cemetery which is home to the the grave that inspired tom riddle's grave in harry potter Excellent. and i said oh sure i guess i'll go i have friends who just <laughs> reveled in the fact that this was a haunted place because they love haunted things i'm very scared so i don't like haunted things but i was like okay well if i go with friends i'll be okay and little did i know the highlight of this tour is that they take you to this very dark crypt i think it's called like the, the black crypt or something and they say so everyone is going to go into the crypt and we're going to close the door so you can only see a little bit out and we're going to tell a, tell you a ghost story as we're inside. And of course, I'm sitting here thinking, oh God, what did I sign up for? So we get shoved in, they start telling a ghost story and I don't know who it is, but someone at the very back goes, oh, I felt a gust, I felt a gust. I'm, I'm at the back of the crypt, I felt a gust, it's a ghost. Needless to say, we were all very spooked. Uh-huh. So I just ran out of there as fast as I could. And I said, okay, all right, I- I'm-, I'm creeped out. No more, no more. Oh my gosh. I- I'm like, what is the human fascination with death and dead people and cemeteries on Halloween night? That is not my but, scene. I mean, Halloween, it, it is, it's the crossing of the worlds, right? That thrill can be fascinating. I fall on the other side. I don't particularly get scared or creeped out much at all. I don't really get creeped out talking about death, but partly because I approach it analytically and through stories. One of the most fun, interesting classes I've I've taught is a course on death and beyond. It's a, a graduate seminar that I've team taught with now three different colleagues. The most recent time I taught it was death and beyond in ancient Greece and China. Ooh. And so looking from our two different perspectives at the ideas of what is death, what's a good death, what's a bad death, what happens in between, what happens in afterlife in the ancient Greek materials and in the Chinese materials. Um, I also did it with Egyptian and Mesopotamian and, you know, but it's fascinating, right? To see certain things seem to be human universals. Right. Everybody has that clash of the worlds, you know, the, the unease about the boundary crossing is, is always there. What it looks like on one side or the other, very different. 
fascinating, you know, cultural differences. I mean, I find it all fascinating, even if a little terrifying. And okay, so well, I could talk to you literally about this subject for hours, which unfortunately I don't, neither of us have the time for, even though I, I wish we could. So to kind of just cap off this this great discussion on, on death and, and horrors, because I'm sure that people eventually will get tired of hearing us talk about dead things. So to kind of cap us off, though, just in your expert opinion, because I'm, I'm very curious now, since you've mentioned all these different cultural things that you kind of cover in certain classes. When thinking about modern contemporary horror stories that we tell, whether in film, TV, book, do they seem to be they, the people who make them, do they take more inspiration from, can you point out maybe a certain culture or a certain culture's ideas about death in the afterlife? Or do you see it as just, it's literally an amalgamation of all these different cultures, all these different ideas, and they kind of hodgepodge them into, I like this from here, this from here, and this from here, so let's put them together. There's always that process of bricolage, right? Of the picking up the pieces and putting them together. So much of contemporary horror and is coming out of specifically reactions to Christian theology. You know, it's not just the exorcist. It's, it, there, there are all sorts of, you know, there are bits and pieces that are drawn from other cultures. One thing that I think is interesting, I have, I, I don't know much about contemporary horror. And, but one thing that, that has been pointed out that I think is very interesting is modern horror is obsessed with zombies and dead, animated dead bodies in a way that is really unique to 20th century onward. Less obsessed with sort of demonic spirits and immaterial things. And we're much more worried about what happens if the material comes back, which I think says something about our society and the kind of things we worry about. As I say, I don't, I don't know enough about contemporary horror to, to be able to, you know, I, I've never understood the whole clown thing at all. Does not appear anywhere else in you know, any culture that I've seen. Right. So that, that kind of, it's funny because I'm like, well, if the ancient Greeks saw it, would they find this just the most ridiculous thing ever? Or would they be like, I guess that's scary? Or I mean, and we're, we're much more worried about mental illness and psycho killers of, of one form or another, right? Yeah, a lot of those like home invasion, psychological horror type things, almost Silence of the Lamb type stuff. I noticed people gravitate toward way more than... We still have a fast, a deep fascination with vampires, Twilight, all these things. But I, I feel like now it's just a morbid curiosity with, oh, look, I, I don't even know. I, I wouldn't even know how to describe it. But we still do have a lot of vampire things, but it's definitely not what's being made right now. Yeah, I mean, and we, we don't, if, if you look at the Greeks, right, they have monsters. But human killers... There's no such thing as a serial killer in ancient Greece or Rome. It's like it's not a not a thing that they thought about. There were certainly people who killed other people, lots of them all the time, but they were more worried about someone who would cast the evil eye on them or put a curse. Every every culture, every age has its own anxieties, its own horrors. Yeah, it's really been an interesting thing to observe throughout the the centuries as we read from okay well what what do these people worry about are you worried about blah 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 mm-hmm. yeah I, I guess I'd never thought of it that way because I mean of course murder has been happening for centuries why don't we hear this more in ancient <laughs> Greece why don't I hear oh the scary home invasion 
you know, invader who's going to come and, you know, try to kill you in all kinds of which ways. I mean, one, they did not have chainsaws, so it's not nearly right. as scary when you come in with your little knife. I mean, or the something. battle axe can be pretty scary, but, you know, it's a different thing. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the, the psychological twist to it. Well, and especially when I, in my opinion, at least, I think half the monsters come up in Greek mythology are 10 times more scary in theory than anything little old humans can do. You know, man with knife or battle axe or bow and arrow coming in versus a really descriptive version of heads right or typhon or or medusa you know you're terrified you're like a woman with snakes who's gonna turn me to stone (gasps) yeah i mean they're still terrifying today so i'm like well why don't we just make a lot more movies based off of obscure greek creatures they're more scary than right We, we know in fact that there were these sort of demons that we don't know much about them because we hear that mothers frighten their kids, like behave or or gargle will get you, right? Or the 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 mormo will get you, you know, Lamia or some other sort of thing. We don't know much about them because they were in the family story. And we only get sort of passing allusions to them. Nobody really works them out. Again, when you probe deeper, there's some terrifying stories about the Mormo Lucea the sort of wolf demon that comes and eats bad children. Like our most complete reference to it is a passing remark in Plato's Phaedo. Right. And and why use and and why use that when you can have when you can just say, well, if you want to warn about stolen or, you know, dying children, just go to Mexican mythology and be like, La Llorona, she's going to come and she's going to drown your children. And then that's a lot more scary than, oh, I have to go find this obscure passage and maybe find a demon. I mean, and and, you know, with with some of the, the Mexican mythology or some of the others, we have living traditions where they're being where the the grandmother stories are still being told. The ancient Greeks, we don't have very many of those. And so from what we know, those kind of stories were were the same kind of stories. They were that that kind of terrifying. 100%, I think. You can look anywhere and you'll find very similar scary stories, whether it's from different cultures, but it's interesting just to see how, where we take them from and what they become now in sort of our, our modern iterations. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Lairs, Scares, and Tartarus Oh My. We hope you enjoyed this spooktastic episode. Don't forget to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And with that, we'll see you next time on Ancient Office Hours. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.